So as many of you probably remember when the, I was up here last, I spoke about being from Houston and one of my favorite restaurants in Houston is, uh, is a restaurant called Taste of Texas. I don't know if anybody has been to that restaurant before, but amazing steaks. Uh, matter of fact, I don't want to talk too much about it because all you're going to be thinking about is what you're going to have for lunch later. Um, but uh, <clears throat> I remember the first time I walked into that restaurant, right before I got into the restaurant, actually, I noticed at the very corner of the building, there's this stone that's a part of the of the building structure there. And it had a verse on it, uh, basically dedicating the building to the glory of God. And someone later uh, mentioned to me that the, the reason for that was actually it was a, it was a deacon of a, a neighboring church that owned that that establishment and wanted to have that as the cornerstone, as the as the focal point of of that state place. Uh, and uh you know, I, I don't know how much you've actually observed or noticed uh, cornerstones in our culture. You probably did not wake up thinking about cornerstones this morning, uh, unless you possibly read First uh, Peter chapter two. Uh, but I have a couple pictures up on the screen of uh, some of them. One of them, the Jefferson Memorial cornerstone, right there, dedicated in 1930. And that's a very common practice for cornerstones. To actually, put the date. There, uh, oftentimes, whoever was presiding over the ceremony at the time as well, and the president uh, at that point in time, Franklin uh, Delano Roosevelt, was was there presiding over that. There's another one, uh, the Capitol Building in Austin. It's cornerstone. I uh, got the, the, the star of Texas there, right? Everybody's familiar with that. It makes sense. It's there. It's on the corner of the building. I found this other one. It was really kind of a random cornerstone here in uh, New York City uh, in the United States. Obviously, no longer politically correct. You'll notice it says it was the uh, administrative center of the New York City Lunatic Asylum. Uh, I don't think we use that word necessarily anymore, the uh, lunatic building. Uh, but uh, but that was that was that cornerstone uh, back then. Uh, and uh, as as from the very beginning, the cornerstone or foundation stone concept was derived uh, from basically the first stone that was set in the construction of a masonry foundation. Right. It was the one piece on which the rest of the house was built. If the cornerstone was not set properly, then the whole structure was potentially not going to be squared up. It would not ultimately stand even the test of time. It was important due to the fact that literally all the other stones would be set in reference to that stone. Now, times have changed. And uh, with technological advancements, the cornerstone has not necessarily become that for us anymore. As a matter of fact, rather than becoming central, rather than being central and critical to the creation of a building, now it's much more ceremonial. I've got another picture up here, and I've got a little caption that I'll read about it. It's, it's actually the um, uh, Therm- Thermont uh, Regional Library in Maryland, right? And the, the, the Masons were presiding over this ceremony here, and it said this in their paper, dressed in black coats and ties, uh, donning aprons, necklaces, staffs, and swords, members of the fraternal organization uh, dedicated the cornerstone of the new building. In laying the cornerstone, uh, it, it, it continued a tradition dating back to the, found, the founding of the nation. They used a square and plumb to make certain the stone was built well and laid true. Others spilled corn to represent plenty, wine to represent health, and water to represent peace from silver urns over the stone. And then uh, the ritual was completed, it says, with a ceremonial clap. I'm not sure if that was like a... I don't know what it was, but some sort of little clap that occurred and then it was over. Right. And so, you know, whether or not the Masons oversee it or whether or not it's some other ceremonial figure of some kind, maybe it's a celebrity, maybe it's the VIP of an organization, a community leader. The reality is now cornerstones for us are primarily ceremonial. It's all about 
when the actual building was put together and when the construction was started and who the architect was and just a place to go there and see about that building. Well, as we enter into this passage of First Peter 2, as we've read just a moment ago in the part of our worship, our cultural perspective can have a great significance as to how we understand this passage. You see, in verses 5 and 6, and I invite you to turn with me there if you have your copy of the Scriptures, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, we find Christ being referred to as a chosen and precious cornerstone. But what did that mean to the recipients of this letter? 1 Peter, written to displaced Christian Jews and Gentiles all throughout Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. This letter who was written to these Christians who were dispersed all over. How, what did they understand? Did they understand Cornerstone to be ceremonial or critical? You see, back then, it was critical. And when they saw Jesus being the Cornerstone and described in such a way, they recognized the writer was saying he is central to the faith. He is critical to who we are and what we're called to do. He is, they would understand, our reference point, determining who we are to become and what we are to look like to the rest of the world. Uh, unfortunately, we often treat Jesus ceremonially in our culture, don't we? I mean, we, we may even throw the Jesus party, right? He can be at the very center of the party, but we fail to recognize that his position is far more than just ceremonial. If what we do with Jesus over the course of a week, typically results in just throwing a ceremonial Jesus party three times on a Sunday morning, then I think we've missed it. First Peter calls him the living stone, a chosen and precious cornerstone, the stone the builders rejected, the capstone. It's all in this passage in second in first Peter two, four through ten. Peter's trying to get at the point that he isn't to be ceremonial for some. Actually, he is critical for all. Let's look at verse five. He says this. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, he's described Jesus as this cornerstone, and then he starts to describe us. And we already had a little bit of this description earlier on in the chapter as we looked at with Ron last week. We saw how we are uh, spiritual uh, babes who are uh, craving pure spiritual milk and putting away the old and, and bringing on this, this new life, this new spiritual maturity. And as this description begins to mature in this passage, we find now we're being described as holy priesthood. And in order to really understand that, we have to kind of go back, right? We go back into the Old Testament. We go, okay, well, what did that really mean? Because we all come from, many of us come from different faiths, different denominations. And when we think of the term priest, sometimes it comes up in a very positive light for us, sometimes in a very negative light. But what about these people? How did they view it? It was an understanding in the Old Testament that the Levitical priesthood became, began with the tribe of Levi and proceeded through the sons of the family of Aaron. And the duties of the Levitical priesthood were really varied. It included teaching of the law and offering sacrifices and maintaining the temple and 
and the tabernacle. It even involved taking up the taxes and uh, adjudicating disputes. And, but the most important distinction of all was that the priest acted as a mediator between God and man. Once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But then we come into God's love letter into the book of Hebrews and what we discover is the writer there explains now that Christ has come. Everything has changed. Listen to this passage in Hebrews ten nineteen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, God's presence, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, the sacrifice of this perfect sacrifice, you see, since we have a high priest, Jesus, over the house of God. What is the writer saying there? He's saying the old covenant, which proved to be insufficient, the animal sacrifices that could never completely atone for our sin now has been replaced with a perfect sacrifice. With a high priest that has come to offer himself atoning for the sin once and for all. And it is because of Christ that we have now been called, as this passage in First Peter says, out of darkness and into light. Now we have access to God. And in First Peter saying, we now have access to his mercy through our mediator Christ. So Jesus really is central and not just ceremonial. And because now his position has been stated as the high priest, it certainly would be important for us to understand, well, what does this really mean, this holy priesthood that he describes us as? Why would he do that? And when it describes us as offering these spiritual sacrifices, what does that look like today? I mean, do we need to go out to, you know, uh, some, you know, Petco and ask them for a dozen doves and an unblemished goat? Well, what do we do as this this responsibility now is on us? These spiritual sacrifices are actually found throughout the New Testament. We're going to dive into several of them this morning to understand our role as a holy priesthood. Here's the bottom line. We've. Those of us who have moved from creation of God's to child of his through receiving the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and in faith receiving that free gift. Those of us who have done that, we've now been hired or in your theological perspective, who whatever it may be, whether it's chosen or accepted or received or adopted or whatever. But now we're in this family. But as a part of this family, what first Peter is telling us is we also have a job description. And the rest of the New Testament, as we begin to piece it together, shows us what some of these spiritual sacrifices are that we as the people of God, living stones coming together from the one reference point, the cornerstone, are to really be about. Let's take a look at them. The first one. If you're taking notes, you can write this. One of our spiritual sacrifices is the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13.25 puts it this way. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. That actually dovetails in quite well with our focal passage for this morning, doesn't it? First Peter 2, 9 and 10, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You say, oh, Randy, that's an easy one. I mean, I got Chris Tomlin playing on my iPod. I come here on Sundays. 
I got the praise thing down. How can I keep from singing your praise? Right. We got we got that down. We can do that. The question is, as I was pondering this this week, when does praise cost me something? When is praise truly sacrificial? When does it become that sacrificial offering? One way we know it becomes sacrificial is located in, again, Hebrews 13, 25. If you look at that passage, it says, let us, and the next word is, continually offer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Here's the question. How will or will I recognize him in the midst of the junk that I'm going through right now? Well, I thank him for ultimately making me look more like his son in the midst of the trial that I am experiencing. As we sang several weeks ago, will I praise him in the storm? I remember the testimony of that surfer girl. Remember her, Bethany Hamilton? She got her arm eaten off by the shark, right? Fended off the shark. I remember several months after that incident, she wound up on the Sean Hannity radio show. And he was asking her about her life and her attitude since that tragic day and just just her experiences. And, 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 and the one comment that she made that just kind of penetrated through all the media, she made this one statement. She said, Sean, Jesus is my hope. Regardless of the circumstance. There's a sacrifice of praise. Here's the idea, this whole fruit aspect. When I'm pressed, what comes out? You see, in that passage, when it says the fruit of lips that confess his name, that Greek word karpos, the product of, he is what I am producing. Am I a praise producer? When I get squeezed, does praise come out? Is it the fruit on my lips? Is it his name? If we were to be honest, and if I were to be honest with you, I would say, you know, oftentimes it winds up being my name, right? When times are good, I take the credit. When times are bad, woe is me. <laughs> Ultimately, the sacrifice in my praise amounts to my willingness to get me off the throne. So maybe the prayer this morning as we begin to look at these four sacrificial elements that we offer is just to say, God, I choose to stay off the throne today and recognize you as Lord. I recognize if I'm to sacrificially praise you this day, it means I walk in humility. I recognize it's not about me, God, it's about you. The world doesn't revolve around me. I'm not the star of the show. The red carpet wasn't meant for me. I'm not even the main character in my two bit little drama. It's all about you, God. I live to show you off. I am the clay pot. Your glory is the flowers that are inside. To offer spiritual sacrifice of praise. But second, to offer this spiritual sacrifice of giving. In Philippians, Paul speaks of resources that had been given to him by the Philippians. Specifically in chapter 4, verse 18, he writes this. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice. Did you catch that? Pleasing to God. 
if we continue on in that passage we looked at a moment ago in the 13th chapter of Hebrews, what we discover is verse 16 saying also about this spiritual sacrifice of giving and do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Are you ready for this? The New Testament understanding of sacrificially giving was not to just from the privacy of our media room man cave, take our iPad out and electronically give to our favorite charity once a month. Now, I'm all for iPads. I'm all for electronic giving. A lot of our giving in this church is electronically done. I'm even for the man cave. We were in Knoxville. We left. We had a home with a basement. Right. And, and, and I love that basement because you could go down in there and it was that little man cave area where on Sunday afternoon you could close doors on both sides of that room and it was pitch black. It was the perfect napping spot. I mean, it was the true sense of cave. It was amazing. I digress. Just kind of thinking back. The New Testament, amen, brother. <laughs> Don't nap yet. (laughs) The New Testament understanding of sacrificial giving was actually done in the context of community. For more on that, you can look at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. The Greek word used here in Hebrews for share in that verse is koinonia. This idea is frequently referred to in churchy lingo as fellowship, right? But it's the state of sharing mutual interest, experiences, and activities. Here it comes. You knew I was getting there. I'm the small group's pastor. To sacrificially give means I'm not going to do the Christian life solo. We are engaged in the lives of others. And it is a sacrifice. Because in order to truly give sacrificially, you have to place yourself in a position to be aware of the needs around you. And it's so easy not to do that, isn't it? Work late, (laughs) drive straight into the garage, let the garage door come down. Don't worry about trying to get into a group at any time during the week. Stay at a peripheral level of communication with most everyone or dare to be just a little bit opposite. I think of some close friends of ours in Knoxville named Larry and Kim. Great friends we're able to do life and ministry with. Their group meets every Monday night. At their home and they invest in the people's lives there in that group. And when Larry's job several years ago took him out of the state, literally every week, Monday through Friday. Only being home on the weekend, Larry made a determination. He said, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay doing group. I said, well, Larry, how are you going to do that? He said, well, I'm going to Skype. And as the facilitator of his small group every Monday night, he Skyped as the facilitator. I said, Larry, why, why, why do you want to do that? He said, to me, I don't want to miss one week of what God is doing in the lives of the people in my group. Quote, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. This week, second question, will we place ourselves in the position of sacrificially giving? To do good and share with others. So, Randy, that's going to take time and, and energy and, and, and money. And, and realistically, I'm tapped out on all of those. And God says, ta-da, sacrifice. Now you get it. 
You see, when you're playing a sport and you're playing out of position, what happens? Ah, you aren't doing your team any favors, right? If you're on the defense and you're playing out of position, then they score the touchdown or they make the basket or they get the goal. If you're out of position on offense, then you miss the opportunity to score. And spiritually, we take ourselves out of position to sacrificially give and the enemy scores. And we miss the opportunity to score as God allows us to be a blessing to others. Sacrificially praising, sacrificially giving the offerings of the holy priesthood. But the third, to sacrificially pray. Just before the seven trumpets began to sound, we find this verse in Revelation chapter 8, verse 3. I'm not going to go all eschatological on you. and I'm not going to define all this. We really don't have time. But I will read this one passage here that says, Another angel who had a golden censer, a plate where the coals rested that would burn the incense, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer along with the prayers of all the saints. These prayers of ours being offered as a sacrifice. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul is giving Timothy these instructions on, again, worship. And he urges, quote, that requests and prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone. So my two-year-old, that just turned two-year-old, two years old last week, Levi has just now this week started to say, Daddy, I am so happy. There was a moment in time where I was convinced I would come into the door and he would literally ramble out probably the genealogical family of Matthew chapter one and not say, Daddy. Vocabulary was increasing, but at the point that he finally said, Daddy, I felt like now we're communicating. Now we've got heart to heart. Now I'm no longer mama. (laughs) The sacrifice of prayer to connect with God at that daddy level. Not just as last resort, but as our first response. We know this. Stronger relationships occur because of stronger communication. Want a better relationship with your spouse? Work on better communication. Want a better relationship with your kids? Work on trying to figure out how to communicate in a way that connects with them. Want a stronger relationship with our Heavenly Father? Communication becomes key. It takes effort. It has to be intentional. And in the verses we just read, prayer helps us recognize Him as the answer, the healer. The restorer. The results of my interaction in this priestly act, what are they? Fears, worries, anxieties fade away because I go, oh yeah, God, you're in control. As I begin to go to him as first response, I no longer see myself as the answer. One other benefit, my heart is moved toward thankful living. I begin to say, thank you, God, for what you are doing. And as I come to you, God, I realize my spiritual eyes stay open to what you are up to in and around me. I'm more spiritually alert than ever before as I take part in this offering of spiritual 
sacrificial prayer. It's the sacrifice of praise, of giving, of prayer. One more priestly duty that I wanted to describe for us this morning. It's more generalized and yet can become very specific. It's the aspect of sacrificially living. This week, our family was in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. I was speaking at a camp. My family was able to come with me. And while we were there, we skied Wolf Creek. Holly sacrificially hung out with Levi. I sacrificially took the other three to the slopes. I used the word sacrificially with great intent. Um, my nine-year-old, my seven-year-old, my four-year-old, I'm not going to put them in ski school. I've taught lots of people how to ski. I've been skiing since I was 15. I can teach all three of them at the same time. By four o'clock that afternoon, I felt as if I had sacrificially given everything. Physically, it was as if I had left significant parts of my body on the slope. Emotionally, I felt like a zombie. My kids' response after the first day, can we get here earlier tomorrow? My response, yes, if I can walk when I wake up tomorrow. The second day, we moved from the bunny slope to the fast four-person lift that I like to call the road to ruin. If I could just describe this to you for a minute, it's flat where the lines are, but to get to the lines, it's sloped down, and you have to actually walk there. You can't ski there. But it's a part of a lift that takes you up to where the longest run is that is green, that will be the best learning place for our kids. So we walk with our skis to get in the line because I'm fearful that trying to put their skis up at the upper level and ski in was going to spell disaster. Little did I know disaster was inevitable. We get there to the line. I've got all three of them. I'm trying to put their skis on in line as well as mine. I work on Shaylee's, my oldest. I get her skis in. We're good. I get Riley's skis in. She's crying. I don't want to do the lift. I don't know the lift. I've never done this before. This is going to be horrible. No, this is going to be fantastic. You're going to love it. Ah, I hate it. I hate it. I get them in. I move to Silas, my four-year-old. I start working on his skis. I get him in his skis. Shaylee goes, oh, mine fell off. I turn around. Hers has come off. I start to put that one in. I turn around and look at Silas. He has now skied through that line to the next line. And the next line and falling over two lines over. I turn back around, finish getting Shaley fixed, decide Silas will be okay over there because he's sitting anyway and everybody looks compassionate. So I finish getting Shaley, I run back over, pick Silas up, carry him back across the lines, sit him down and turn to my left only to find that Riley has taken off both of her skis in defiance, crying, saying, I'm not going on that lift. Me being the compassionate father said, oh, yes, you are. Put her back in the boots. Get up on the lift. Get to the top. Ski down. And do it again and again and again and again until finally 3.30 that afternoon. We're on the lift going up and Riley turns to me and asks, don't they have one of these in Texas? (laughs) 
They experienced life as they never knew they could experience it from the top of an 11,000 foot mountain. And to get to that point, dad became a living sacrifice. (laughs) Now, I will admit that little snapshot of my life pales in comparison to what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 12. But he does write this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I believe there are a few parallels because you see, when we choose to live sacrificially with everything that we are, our eyes and ears, our mouth, our mind, our emotions, our strength, everything, when we wake up saying, God, I will do this day what pleases you. He's going to use us to take people to a destination they've never been before. And experience what they've never experienced before. Because Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And when we live sacrificially, our Heavenly Father chooses to use that holy and pleasing act of worship to expand his kingdom on this earth. So that people can discover how to truly live. Now, I have to admit. I could have chosen to ski the blue runs all day. But I would have missed out on experiencing the joy of watching my kids fly down that mountain. And selfishly, we can choose to live out a lifetime of self-absorbed adventures. But none can satisfy like giving ourselves away for his purposes, for his glory. What does that look like for you? Jumping into a small group? Starting one. Committing to two hours on a Sunday instead of just one to say, no, I'm going to I'm going to live weekly in the lives of some children on the other side of that room. I'm going to be a small group leader in the students. I don't know much, but I'm willing to jump in and help adolescents know Jesus better. To give, to go, to missionally connect. Sacrificial living says, God, you use me however you choose. I am willing to be spent for you. Now, remember whenever you were little and you were first learning subtraction? And what you do is, how would you figure out if you had gotten it right? You'd add the bottom two numbers together to see if the top one added up. Let's work backwards for a minute and see if it all adds up. Because we started off this morning reading that we are like living stones being built into a spiritual house whose cornerstone, the reference point for which all other stones in the structure exist, is Christ. Look at this. John 17, 4. I have brought you, Jesus says, glory. He's speaking to his Father on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, I give you glory. I give you praise, Father. I praise you, the high priest. Sacrificially praising. Later on in that chapter, John seventeen twenty, my prayer is not for them alone, not just for the disciples that were around him. He's saying, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message as it's carried down hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to those of us who are sitting in this auditorium right now. And we recognize Jesus was at that moment praying for us. The sacrificial praying of the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. 
Galatians 2.20. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and did what? Gave himself for me. When we look at the cross, what do we find? The one who sacrificially gave. The cornerstone. And finally, Hebrews 7.24 and 25. But because Christ Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who came to God Come to God through him because he what always lives to intercede for them. What's our cornerstone doing? He is sacrificially living. It all adds up. The cornerstone who is central has determined the position for all the other stones. You know, over the centuries, one of the unique aspects of. Some cornerstones are that they are oftentimes partially hollowed out. And artifacts or different items are placed in them as kind of a time capsule. Reflecting the date that the cornerstone was laid. In the cornerstone of the Washington Monument, for instance. Everything from the copies of our Constitution to the Declaration of the Independence. the Declaration of Independence, to the coins that were minted on that date, 1848, to a copy of the Bible are actually placed inside of the cornerstone there, the Washington Monument. If someone were to open up that capsule inside of that cornerstone, they would find that which reflected the country in, 19, in 1848. Christ, the cornerstone, in him laid bare, what do we find? The chosen and precious cornerstone of our faith, what do we find in him? He reflects what? He reflects our Heavenly Father. Love, grace, forgiveness, mercy, truth, holiness, the attributes of our God and King. Matter of fact, Hebrews 1 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things. By his powerful word. Thank you, God, for your son. He is our high priest. He is our central, not just ceremonial cornerstone. He is our reference point determining who we are to be and what we are to do as a holy priesthood who are aliens and strangers in this world. Let's pray. God. We recognize that as we have looked at the last couple of minutes, just to see how it is that you have defined us as this holy priesthood, that some of these sacrifices of worship have penetrated each one of us in different ways. For some of us, it was that that whole living component, the giving. God, we recognize that as we look at this sacrifice of praise, it actually involves us stepping off the throne and making sure you're there. God, whatever it is that you met us with this morning. May we be obedient to take those next steps as a holy priesthood 
designed to show you off to a world who desperately needs you. God, thank you for inviting us into this calling, into this moment, into this time that really without you, we have no purpose. You are our defining purpose. Thanks for providing some clarity of that this morning through your love letter. We love you, God. In Jesus' name.